Welcome to Sound and Vision. Conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. NYC Crit Club's 2021 summer semester begins enrollment April 19th. Classes often fill in the first week, so early registration is highly encouraged. Now in its fourth year, NYC Crit Club is offering 12 new courses this summer via Zoom with 12 faculty and 60 guest speakers and critics from around the country. Summer 2021 semester features a wide range of courses focusing on advanced critique with six sections of the Visiting Critic program and a newly designed art career intensive course. NYC Crit Club has added new courses in art history, writing, photography, and theory of painting. Faculty Evgenia Baras and Padma Rajendran will each be leading their own uniquely designed three-week intensives. NYC Crit Club is a radical alternative offering critique, community, and connection for artists post-BFA and post-MFA. NYC Crit Club is proud to offer BIPOC scholarships and work-study rates for artists in financial need. NYC Crit Club is founded and directed by Hilary Doyle and Catherine Haggerty. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in-depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA, and a three-year certificate prioritize experimental learning and perception. Beginning in fall 2021, the Studio School welcomes artists from around the world to join its inaugural virtual certificate program, combining the studio-centric emphasis of the school's teaching methods with an individual real-time approach to online learning this full-time program is designed for serious artists and dedicated aspiring artists who seek to cultivate the studio skills and methods that will prepare them for a lifetime of art making the priority application deadline is april 30th 2021 apply online today at nyss.org Carla Garcia is an artist born in 1977 in Juarez, Mexico, and is a professor of art and ceramics assistant at the Dallas College Mountain View campus. She completed an MFA degree in ceramics and a museum education certificate from the University of North Texas in May of 2019. The same year, she was awarded the top prize at the 6th Annual Art Space 111 Regional Exhibition. Carla was selected as a visiting artist at the Dallas Museum of Art, where she created a four-month interactive installation titled Carito de Memorias, which was selected to be exhibited at a Latin American fine art competition in New York. Carla attended an international artist residency in St. Raphael in France, where she began the exploration of her work Home and Land Project, which was exhibited at the Nasher Sculpture Center for the Nasher Window series in August of 2020. I spoke with Carla just before her solo show at 1226 Gallery in Houston, Texas wrapped up for a talk about materiality, music, clay, the border, and much more. 
Here's our conversation. I mean, why don't we just start with, you know, where you grew up and and how you started becoming creative in life? <laughs> yeah, so I was born in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico mm-hmm. and which is across the border from El Paso, Texas. Yeah. And I grew up there until I was 13 and uh, I moved with my mom to El Paso after we lost everything, really, my parents had gotten divorced and uh, we just didn't have anything. We were I was living with my grandmother um, and my mom ended up going to El Paso um, looking to study. So she got her nursing certificate and thanks to that, she got a job at a hospital and they were able to um, arrange papers for her and for us to come with her. And, uh, yeah, so when, when she got that job, uh, I moved up there with my brother and yeah, so we made a a life in El Paso. Um, and that was a really, that time was just really, it was a big transition. Um, not just because it's from Mexico to El Paso, that was a big part, but it was something that felt so familiar, which is when you live at the border. It's um, everything's familiar because you you cross the border like every weekend to go buy groceries or to buy things and and we did that a lot. I I would walk with my grandmother across the bridge and then buy groceries and then or buy you know clothing and then walk back that bridge and so everything was you know we it wasn't unfamiliar, but then moving there it was so different. The people you know the culture was different. Um, the language was different. So those were things that I had to, you know, work really hard to learn the language and then to understand the, the way, you know, just little things that the, the little things that people would be, you know, when you go travel to a, a different place and there's those just little different things that you weren't familiar with before. So right. like those things, um, were there were present and then also my mother was remarried at that point and uh, my wonderful stepfather who passed away uh, was from Syria so my household was just this cultural you know um, ecosystem (laughs) sort of and so it wasn't just learning American culture but it was also like understanding his culture from Syria being a Muslim and speaking Arabic so that's something that I just think about all the time this household of immigrants um, that we just learn to love each other and be around each other and understand our differences and really uh, embrace that about each other and and that was my basically from thirteen and on that was my life it was just like a lot of different things that were um, around me adapting right because thirteen it's yeah. not I mean you're pretty established in everything in a way you know like the wires are wired and you're getting used to a certain way of everything and then I can imagine socially too that that shift is a big adjustment and then you so you have the family adjustment you have the geographic adjustment you have the language adjustment and the social adjustment I mean geez (laughs) yeah exactly it's it's a lot to take in for a kid right yeah I can imagine (laughs) Well, in in a 13, well, maybe it's different for girls. I mean, I have a 13 year old at 13 for a boy. I mean, they, they're, it's, it's happening. Like there's changes, there's attitude, there's like, you know, there's pushback and 
there's like a, that sort of march to independence, which is often a, well, I don't know about often. I mean, I'm, I've only have one kid, but I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's almost like a battle zone of like hormones and emotions <laughs> and like wanting to get out and not be, you know, like around your family in a way and, and forge your own path. I didn't know if you had any of those feelings of, you know, teenagerdom yet, but. Oh yes, of course. There was always that, you know, you just want to kind of uh, come out of your, of your bubble, right. And experience life a little bit. I remember, uh, the first year when I was in El Paso, um, I was going to this Catholic school to learn English. So I, when I moved, I had just finished seventh grade and then the next year, rather than going to a regular school, I went to this, um, uh, school that was run by nuns and it was all English, uh, just to learn English. And, um, I remember one day I told my mom that I wanted to take the bus, that I didn't want her to pick me up. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and me not understanding like how to communicate exactly, like, I got on the wrong bus and I went all the way to the end of the line and I was just sitting there so nervous because I didn't know where I was. And then the, the bus driver finally asked, like, where are you going? And uh, so I told him and he's like, oh, girl, you, you, you need to go back to the station and get a different bus. So um, he told me where to, get, where, where to hop on. And so I went to the different bus and then drove all the way back to the, to the station downtown and finally got on that bus. And then I got home so late and my mom was petrified. Oh, she, yeah. had called, she had called the cops because, oh, no. you know, I had never done this before. <laughs> She laughs about this, uh, but it was scary. It was scary because, you know, being in a different place and not knowing people and then just getting on a bus and that, you know, like anything could have happened to me. But uh, thankfully I was safe and finally I got home and I got in so much trouble. No No more bus. Did she drive you after that for a while? (laughs) Um, I think we just decided to just do short distances after that. Right. And she would let me just go from, you know, from the house to school or, you know, just little things. Um, but yeah, it, it was scary. <laughs> right. Now, did this a major adapting to so many different things? And this is a, a jump, but did you sort of find yourself, was creativity involved at a stage of your life to where you would find escape through that? Because so many you know, younger kids, like we've, we kind of like find our voice and escape in creativity. I don't know how, when did that enter into your life? Uh, yeah. So ever since I was little, I liked drawing and my mom, uh, my mom had me like go to one of her friend's house and she would, uh, uh, teach me and, and three other friends of mine art and we would, you know, draw everything from, you know, just with pencil, markers, um, oil pastels and stuff like that. So she always found a way to kind of keep me creative in that way. Um, I didn't really know I was creative, really. Like I was, it was just something that I did. Yeah. And my mom, um, I was very lucky that my mom helped me just kind of keep me pushing me there. Um, so yeah, ever since I was little, um, I was, I was creative, um, and, when I went to high school, I took, you know, studio classes and I knew I enjoyed that. I didn't know that I was going to be an artist. I just, you know, that's just what I like to do. And then in college, I uh, changed my major <laughs> like three times. 
uh, from engineering, uh, computer science, uh, and yeah, I just did not enjoy that at all. And then finally, I started taking studio classes, and I loved it, but I didn't think I could pursue it because it was expensive yeah. to buy art tools, and, and you know, I just didn't have the right kind of guidance that how can you become an artist uh, with uh, limited resources, basically. And my mom was, she was very, she was very supportive. She would always tell me, whatever you decide to do, you know, you can go ahead and do that. But from my point of view, I was thinking I needed to make money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so just like like every kid, right? Right. Practical, so practical yeah. sort of future. Just be able yeah. to pay the bills. Exactly. Yeah. So I found uh, that some people were going through communications programs to do advertising. And I thought, well, I could do graphic design and still, you know, be creative and kind of, yeah, kind of compromise there. But I set these, all of these uh, um, limits on myself. You know, my mom would just ask me, like, is this really what you want to do? Um, so I did that. I studied design and graduated and got a job uh, for design firms. I worked for about 10 years in different places and finally, you know, decided that that, that wasn't the right environment for me. Well, that's a, and that's a pretty long tenure. Yeah, it is. And I mean, you become comfortable with, with the income. Yeah. It's like how do, then, the longer you're in it, the harder it is to walk away, right? Because you're like, well, I've got a gig and, yeah, you know, it's almost like if you never have it, it's easier because you're just like, well, you know, you don't know or you don't have that experience of having the structure or the feeling of like stability. Yeah. So it's yeah. easier to, you know, just jump in the pool, so to speak. But yeah, if you have that for a while and you get used to it, I think there's that adage in school, right? That sometimes they, I don't know, when I was in undergraduate school, they would a lot of people would debate whether you go straight to graduate school, don't do it at all, or you wait a while. And some people would say, well, you should take some time and live in the real world. But then there were some people who came back to school and said, no, don't do that. Because if you get stuck in a job, you might never, you might just not get back into never it leave. again. Yeah. So it was kind of like conflicting on how that goes. But it sounds like you, you know, you spent a while doing that. I mean, did it slow, did you, early on in that, did you think, eventually I want to step away from this or was it kind of like it at year nine you started saying okay I got to get out of this uh, a little bit of both <laughs> right. yeah so probably in my mid-20s I I started meeting a lot of artists here in Dallas after I had moved here and I just wanted to be around them and be you know be part of you know the Dallas art scene somehow so you know I, I would I, at one point, I did decide I want to go back to school and study art, and that was in my 20s. Uh, but it wasn't until my mid-30s that I actually did it, and it was because of that. It was, um, uh, how am I going to support myself? I bought a house, you know, <laughs> like, how do I pay my bills? And finally, I took a class at this community college here in Dallas, and I was talking to my one of the wonderful professors there and she basically told me like you you know there there are ways you can get loans you can do this you can do that get grants you know get scholarships uh, you can do this without you know losing your sleep basically yeah. <laughs> about money so I decided to go ahead and and just quit my job and um, 
did two years of uh, community college classes and then applied to grad school and that's when I got accepted. Now, how did so you... So I just kind of took the deci- jump. How did you decide on that? Like where were you getting input from your teachers on where to apply or did you want to stay local or did you want to move somewhere? For, like what was your mindset? Because you've been pretty I had local, to stay right? local. You, you were yeah. pretty local your whole experience there, right? Yeah, so most of my mentors uh, from that time all went to the University of North Texas. So I loved their work and I wanted to study there. And uh, my now husband, he also works there. So it was kind of an easy decision. It practical and and also I admired the, the people that had gotten out of there, yeah. uh, from there. So yeah, so I just decided to, to try that. So it, it's a lot of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. I just want to Once ask. Once you said about, roots. <laughs> I wanted to ask about that too, because my experience in Texas is so limited. It was basically when I used to play music and going through there and not really spending a lot of time at all. But I, I vaguely remember driving in our van on tour and being near the border. It must have been near El Paso, like coming th- down through Arizona from California through Texas. And we got near the border and we were really close and we got stopped and there was like a checkpoint. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, and I had never had any experience. I'm young here. I don't really know anything. And the, the charged atmosphere was like palpable. It was really stressful for some reason. And they had dogs come into the van. Yep. And it just, that was one of the first times I really felt like that kind of um, tension, you know? So yeah. is that, was that just a perception based on being near the border or is there always kind of that feeling there around the border? I think you get, well, I mean, just being from there, it's normal Yeah. and you just know what to expect and you know that there's going to be checkpoints and uh, crossing the border. There's, uh, uh, there's also uh, people walking by the cars and the line of cars with dogs yeah. and, and checking the cars and smelling the cars and then in uh, in the u.s side um what is it maybe like a hundred miles outside of town there's a checkpoint um so you just it's just normal Um, you get used to it you get used to it yeah i yeah i don't think i i think you're you can only you know that somebody would be nervous if there was something (laughs) uh sort of illegal going on but otherwise yeah it's it's just normal yeah and i i've like El Paso, what's the, I mean, Texas is so right. I mean, lately it's just, I feel like been in the news constantly with people migrating there from outside of Texas because of, you know, there's this, um, I don't want to say hipness to it, but you know, there's a lot of places people want to go, whether it's Austin or Dallas. And, but then there's all these news stories about, you know, the tension there and all the things that are going on with the border and with like COVID and all that. I mean, what is the, is it, is it, able to be summarized the pulse or the feeling of what's going on in Texas I mean I'm so ignorant to it because I'm just not there you know I guess it just depends on what side of the right or left spectrum you're on okay uh it is very divisive for sure and and we feel that here that divisiveness uh with you know the the people that you're close to um that have the same ideology as you you know it becomes an echo chamber and you 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 agree on everything and you you want to see the same things happen right and if you're on the other side they're hearing the same thing from from their perspective and so when you talk to 
the other side of the spectrum, it gets really heated really fast. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it, it seems that way. And it really feels like it's kind of like a microcosm of the election map or something, or, or the dynamic of the election within a given place. Because there are so many areas that seem, you know, progressive and then conservative and they're very close or within the same city or neighboring. And, you know, whereas you have, you know, I don't know, if you look at the difference between Manhattan or downtown Los Angeles and, you know, some place in the middle of Idaho or Iowa or something, it's, it's much more stark of a difference. But it feels like Texas has it all jammed in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's uh, right or left for the most part. And I just, it, it's very seldom when you find that middle ground where you're, you can actually discuss and have dialogue and and really, you know, discuss ideas or why you differ. It, it, it's hard to find that. Now, do you feel like that's a negative to the environment of being there or is it something that, because ideally it could be a great social experiment is where ideally people can come <laughs> together to some point. Like, because, you know, during the election time when people are talking about, oh, it's going to be a civil war, if it's either right or left. And, you know, when you just felt like, well, the country's too big and everyone's too split apart geographically, but... It feels like Texas is a little more of like a powder keg of that stuff being really close together. But I don't know if that feels in a way productive or it's like a way for people to exist and to work out those things or to live peacefully amongst, you know, really different ideologies or if it feels like tension and um, fraught and just like not uncomfortable, basically. It's tension and uncomfortable for <laughs> okay. sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you, I guess if there's somebody that you really trust and and are comfortable having these discussions with that you know have a completely different viewpoint than you, yeah, that would be ideal. But it's it's uh, getting there is hard and yeah. and just maybe creating a premise that hey, we're gonna let's talk about this. You know, let's put our differences aside and just have casual discussion and, and see where we agree and where we don't agree. But getting there is a hard part. And, and I haven't found that sweet spot yet with, right. with uh, people that, that differ from me. Yeah. Now in your creative life, in the midst of being, because it sounds as though you've spent your life to a large degree in, in between, like kind of, yeah. you know, like, moving between two areas, like literally between U.S. and Mexico or in your family between sort of like Arabic and, and Spanish or, you know, or like the dynamics between, you know, the surrounding environment. How does, how or does it manifest itself in the work? And what were you doing back in school? Like, what was the work like when you started making things? And, you know, like, how did it, d does it enter the equation in a more concrete way or is it more subtle or does it affect the way you approach creativity? Yeah, definitely always having to navigate all of these aspects of, uh, of kind of like the dualities, right, of life and, and being Mexican, being American, uh, being close to someone who was, uh, who was Syrian my brother and sister, my half-brother and sister are, are half Syrian, half Mexican, born in the U.S. And so I find it easy for me to navigate all of these aspects and, and just finding my ground in the middle. And 
in my work, I, I try to create sort of that feeling of, of constriction and expansion in the way that my cacti sculptures develop. And I'm talking about the way not just a memory felt like, but also the way that life is within these constraints of, uh, uh, of uh, belief systems, of, uh, of, of uh, languages, and everything kind of like goes like this, like in and out. And, and so in my, in my work, I, I start to coil build my sculptures. Um, and so with my fingertips, I, I, it creates kind of this tension when I'm going inside or going inward with a, with a cactus and then starting to go upward and then something that may kind of collapse a little bit and bring it that up. And so in, in that, in the way that I move the clay is the way that I kind of channel those dualities and, and the way that that my life experience has developed. Yeah. And did it, was it more unconscious at the beginning? You know what I mean? Did it, or was it always something that was sort of explicit within the work? It sort of developed, uh, when I started working on this body of work, I, you know, I knew that I wanted to work with the cactus form and with the desert landscape and just making the models of the cactus sculptures, uh, just trying to see, you know, how, because if if you think about a cactus, people like tend to think of them as this really bulbous, really sort of uh, kind of like a, this really round shape. And then all the textures that come with the spines and the color and everything. Uh, But for me, it was more about what happens when the environment changes or when there's something that's in the way and how the cactus starts to shift and change yeah. and just create new shapes. And so to me, that was um, just looking at uh, an environmental impact on, on this plant, how it created that metaphor for me, for for humanity, really, like our life experiences and how it's constantly changing and how we all kind of have these moments of hardships Um that are not just the work is unique to me, but I think the idea can be can be universal to everyone, um, as we all experience these changes and and in different ways. Yeah, and I think the the work has not to you know be presumptive, but the, the work seems to have like a connection to provincial, um, the landscape and the feel of the area, but at the same time have that greater dialogue, whether it's with sculpture, ceramics, or, you know, in the works on paper also have like a greater connection, I think, to a sort of, at least in my interpretation, like a process-based exploration of, you know, two dimension with like a physicality to it that, you know, reminds me of like Sarah or, you know, people who are making physical sculptures or objects and then also working in 2D. But I think it, it feels like it really is is born of the area and from where you are in your experience. So it's kind of a nice, you know, um, resonating with, you know, where you're from and your, your past. But I'm also curious too, is like, who are your external influences that weigh heavily on you or that you're really interested in outside of that sort of connection? You know what I mean? Visually. Are there people that you've always looked at that have really sort of, you know, you just feel like, yeah, that's my, that's my jam. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. Gabriel Orozco has been someone that I that I look up to. So good, right? Uh, yes. Oh my God, it's amazing. Uh, the way that he finds uh, uh, materials just uh, from walking around and, and something that may uh, be sort of sort of uh, something that you could pass away, but then it's symbolic of something larger. And he'll use these materials to create these beautiful floor pieces or sculptures. And and when I when I first saw his work, I was just so taken by it. And um, yeah, I, I follow his work. And also Damian Ortega mm-hmm. um, is another one that I love, uh, how he finds his connections to history and society. Uh, so that I saw one of his pieces at a collection um, I can't remember the name of, of the collector, but uh, we did a, a quick uh, tour at this house and there were like all these amazing pieces by famous artists. And I saw the, the one, I can't remember the title of it, but it's the one with the tortillas uh, stacked in like this uh, sort of a, 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 like a cell for, formula or something. Right. Uh, I can't remember what it's called right now, but when I saw that one in person, because I had only seen it, online or in books and I was just I just stared at it I stand in front of it and it was just the the materiality of this one food product right Right. and what that recalls from um, from history from uh, home life as well and and just all these moments that you find in just being in the presence of this one object uh, that typically, you know, you wouldn't think about using something like that for a sculpture, and but then he does it, and it was just amazing to see that. Um, I also like, um, let's see, Margarita Cabrera was influential mm-hmm. in my work too. Uh, she's from the border, and she also finds uh, objects and then transform, transforms them into uh, material to create uh, things, objects and installations that speak of uh, border life and culture and um, like equity and stuff like that. Right. Um, yeah, um, I love Eva Hess. Uh, of she's also yeah, she's amazing. Uh, I went to see her work uh, at a museum once, and just being in front of something that you know, like something that at first sight is like so textured and. Then you start to find, you know, when you're walking around it, you start to find like all of these ideas that she put in with her hands and then use uh, other materials and binders to like um, put it together. And, and yeah, just the way the materiality is used in these artists is something that um, I continue to look at. Yeah. And that's something that I use as well. What about, um, you know, music? How did that, were you, was there music in the house growing up? Was it a big part of your life? <laughs> music was chaotic. <laughs> that laugh is to say indicative the least of, I think, what's coming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, because of the collage, oh the collage-like atmosphere of it? it? It was, okay, so my sister will laugh when she hears this podcast, but um, so going into my house would be, to someone listening to heavy metal and my mom listening to uh, mariachi or like ranchera songs Mm -hmm. and then at the same time my grandfather playing his guitar and then somebody else listening to the radio (laughs) (laughs) 
So it's a lot at once. So, yeah, so I, every weekend for sure, like it would come in my house and it would just be a cacophony of sounds. Yeah. Um, and somehow we still found, you know, ways to, to talk to each other within all of those sounds. And my mom would be, you know, cooking something or reading, you know, like how do you read when there's all these sounds? And she's just, she just has this incredible way to tune everything out yeah. and then just zone into her books. <laughs> That's pretty impressive because it sounds like, you know, are you able to do that? Like when you're in the studio, are you listening to music or are you like silence? No. I work in silence, ah, yes. <laughs> have you tried yeah. it or do you ever have music going? Or Sometimes uh, I'll put you know Pandora on and I'll just set it to something that doesn't have, that is just uh, the sounds, um, just instrumental. Yeah. Now with all that sort of, I mean, that's a pretty good diversity of music going on when you're young. Um, how did you come out of that? Did you just, just, do you now just listen like Top 40? Did you go against that or do you listen to... <laughs> deep cuts of like world music or how like where's your musical tastes i i vary depending on how i'm feeling i mean sometimes uh uh, i'll listen to like eddie vetter (laughs) (laughs) and then yeah that makes sense (laughs) sometimes i i listen to rancheras you know depending on what i'm feeling like sometimes i i listen to uh you know like I like jam to like Britney Spears or something. Yeah. <laughs> I was like I, I just like I have all tastes. It's varied. They, yeah, it's varied. It just depends on the mood. Yeah, I think when I was in college, I I went through a phase. I was a DJ in college in jazz, and you know I got really interested in world music and just exploring different. And I think the music at that time that I was listening to was borrowing from like dub reggae and African rhythms and Cuban, and you know all over. So I just it opened my mind up to all this different music. And I remember going into a little bit of a mariachi, kind of like traditional Mexican music, um, kind of like period. But the, it's yeah. so, the, the beauty of it is it has such a specific feel to me. And I don't know if that's contextualized with my experiences of listening to it when I was younger in certain situations, but it has such a great vibrancy in its own kind of feel, you know, which is pretty amazing. It is, it is. And, and, I mean, they, yeah, the, uh, mariachi, I love mariachi music, and is, it is vibrant, and it is uh, uh, kind of like like a ballad, you know, like it, it can be slow, but it can be just melodic, and it can also be loud and rambunctious, and um, yeah, I, I love it. And percussive without an extraordinary amount of percussion, too, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like that, the rhythm and the, yeah, it's, it's really great. I think in in the U.S. it's been so kind of, I don't know, it's they've like contextualized it into some sort of like niche gimmicky thing with like restaurants or something, or I don't know, it's been sort of like not given the fair shake. I think to a lot to a large extent of how beautiful that music is. Yeah, I think if you go to you know in Mexico, you you would go to a park and uh, there'd be people walking around. And then you hear music, and that kind of puts you more into that um, kind of that state of mind that like that that culture is present. Yeah. And when you're in a restaurant, it's just you know limited to where you're sitting, right. and yeah, it becomes a little bit like okay, so I'm just here for an hour Showtime. to eat and listen right. to music. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As opposed to being embedded in life. Um, yeah. So, well, when you're in school, how? 
like what is the work like and how did it change over the course of progressing through you know your first forays into you know working in different I mean were you trying different medium or did you immediately gravitate towards what you're working with now how did that play out so starting in in grad school I knew that I wanted to pursue ceramics um and I did not know where my work was going to take me. So I was, I was uh, going back to history in, uh, in my studies and, and just finding these connections, looking at, at uh, ancient Mesoamerican uh, structures, symbolisms. And so I started making these pedestals. And I was trying to understand uh, through colonialism how, how the Spanish were teaching indigenous populations about Spanish culture and Spanish belief systems and religion. Um, and it was this, these ideas that were imposed on the indigenous cultures, um, but using the same visual language that they were using. So the, the, this style was called Tequitqui. So I was re- looking really closely at that and seeing how, um, how that might feel to use this technique um, and then embellish that with my own belief systems and my own experiences. Uh, so I did several of those uh, pedestals and then it just didn't feel authentic to me uh, to continue using kind of this ancient uh, method when, you know, I'm completely removed now being, you know, I'm, I'm both, you know, Spanish and indigenous and that's sort of like ingrained in my in my identity, um, but I needed to find out how I can, how I can talk about this combination of identities into into my work without using somebody else's um, um, style. So I talked to my professor, um, and I was just saying that I, I wanted to do something completely different and explore materials and he was all for it. He was so supportive. And I was using digital methods as well at that point. And so I started exploring different materials and what happens when you transform them through like laser etching, which is, it's ironic because laser etching or any kind of CNC um, machine is for precision and so I was using these machines to abstract and to change and, and add something different and unexpected to my materials and I began to explore um, corn husks as uh, my material because still going back to history you know corn uh, was was symbolic um, as a symbol and it was also symbolic of uh, like the food that was eaten, um, and all of these other aspects of it. And so it was really prevalent. You'll find a lot of uh, iconography involving, <clears throat> excuse me, involving corn. So I used a corn husk to, to talk about this and talk about culture and talk about my history. And I developed um, this beautiful portrait of my mother on the floor of the gallery at, at school and I charred the husks and I created this uh, value scale with them. And so transforming this very humble and simple material that usually just gets thrown away. Um, and, and I was able to, to talk about memory of home, um, culture, historical value of it, and created alongside with that another piece on the wall that was called Landscapes by Buzz. And that was 
tiny little fragments of corn husks that were laser etched and transformed and distorted. And so when I lit them with light, this really like uh, bright theatrical light, it created this large window and gave each husk a really pristine shadow that even that shadow sort of communicated an idea in, the, in a memory. Um, and so I put, I put this large grid on the wall with this large light um, that created a, a window. And so when looking at it from, from afar, it almost seemed like driving by bus and all these little moments that you might see while you're, while you're by the window. And then up close, each one of the husks created these um, just kind of delicate moments that became precious. And yeah, so I started, uh, I did, you know, my whole thesis year was with corn husks. And I had one still life object, uh, a table with objects that were made with uh, fired ceramics and also rock clay ceramics. And um, leaving grad school, I wanted to continue exploring the landscape and uh, working with clay and, and creating. I didn't know what I was going to create, but I just kind of thought I had this idea that I put on the you know uh, back of my mind for a while while I was trying to find a job and um, and kind of I need I needed some time to like really plan this out and think about it and and do all the research and creative process that it requires. So. Um, Last year, I did a residency in France, and it was a short one. It was only a month, but it was enough for me to just fully put my brain, you know, into this into this work and like really think about what it is that I want to say with this and what I'm gonna make. Uh, and coming back from that residency into the pandemic, um, it just kind of made me sit down with with my sketches, my thoughts, my notes, and I continue to work at home, um, not knowing that we would still be here today, right? <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> a year later. A year later. Uh, so I just continue to make and make and make and make, and I lost access to, to the studio at school, to kilns and everything. My first inclination was to create, you know, a fully fired ceramic object, and then um, I lost I lost that part of my of my studio life, right? And so I started looking at these objects as raw and really keep them as raw um, as they were, just sort of you know coming up everywhere in my house as I would make them, and they would just start to kind of have their own presence and their own you know life um, as raw objects, and and that's where this this body of work came from. It was from from uh, these objects sort of talking back at me and, and telling me this is, you know, these are your memories. These are, this is the, this is, yeah, the life that you had before and you still carry it with you. And that's where I carry this line with me was, uh, was kind of born. Before that, I called it Home and Land Project, uh, which um, connected directly to uh, uh, documenting the work at home and seeing my my sculpture objects just in place and sort of installed at home and seeing everything around it that that that's here with me now and just connecting that past life with my current life um here well is that the reason you started working without firing 
Is that because, are you normally working with kilns where you teach at Dallas College and then you didn't have access to that? Or do you normally work at home? Like, where's your studio situation? Like, how are you making your work? At home, definitely at home. I, yeah, I, 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 uh, I still go to, the, to Dallas College to fire student work, but uh, that's, that's as far as I can do there. I don't have uh, access to, to use that as my studio. Okay. I only work a, a very few hours a week, so most uh, all of my personal work is here at home. I see. So you have a kiln where you are? No. Oh, you don't? No, I don't. Okay, so that's no. why you were doing the sort of the raw. Was the work on paper, which is really great, is that stuff that you're doing all along, or was did that ramp up when you were at home during quarantine? At home during quarantine, yeah. definitely, yeah. Did you yeah. Did you not often do that kind of work before that? No, I mean I sketch, but I I don't really uh, in the last you know since since grad school in the last five six years I, I haven't done much of two D, uh, so this was something that I did here um, in response to not just the quarantine but it was in response to the sculptures. Yeah, so that maybe a silver lining in a way, something good that came. Yeah. Yeah, I'm super excited about the drawings. Uh, that's something that I, I want to continue exploring uh, different, maybe different surfaces, uh, probably fabric, uh, see what happens with fabric rather than paper or both, um, and different scales and, and just play with the material and, and do more. Uh, expo- it, the drawings to me are... are for this series was a deconstruction of the landscape and so I was looking at how something feels, how something looks, how, you know, looking at up close, you know, of the earth, looking at the shapes of the plants. Um, yeah, so it was it was uh, very much about materiality and about uh, deconstruction of this landscape and going for- forward, I think I can continue to push that and, and, and just... Who knows where it will go, but yeah, but yeah, I'm excited about that. Now, were they all drawings, or were there some printmaking techniques or other ways of applying, like, or is is it all strictly drawing? I call them drawings, but uh, some people refer to them as paintings mm-hmm. uh, because of the application. Sometimes I'll, I'll do washes of charcoal, um, but I, I like to think of them as drawings because if I was telling my friend about this, that to me when I I think about if you're in front of this soil, right, of this earth, and then you start to play with it. To me, even though I'm making marks in different ways with a tool or with with my hands, uh, to me that's a drawing and some sort of like lifting that up uh, conceptually onto paper and and showing you like this this is the earth, this is the land, and this is, you know, what it might feel like. This is what I'm looking at. But... uh, um, I can see how they could also be considered um, paintings. Uh, as far as printmaking, maybe um, sometimes I'll just put um, the clay or or, or the uh, charcoal on another piece of paper, and then I'll make a mark there, and then I, I will transfer it onto the clay. So there is that aspect that could be sort of um, uh, inspired by printmaking. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like different ways of making a mark that resonate yeah. with the physical side of whatever you're either creating or experiencing. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're really dynamic. I mean, they look great. So it's really 
Um, I th- I think in seeing those, if you just see the ceramic pieces, they have a look and a feel and a kind of, they'll take your mind somewhere. But then I think when you see those drawings in relation to them, it kind of expands out the the sort of conceptual and, and visual narrative between the two, which yeah. I think is, is, it's nice, you know, it, it expands the horizons, I would imagine. Yeah. That's a really good word for it. It's, yeah, expanding that horizon of that landscape. Oh, yeah, yeah I didn't even sure. mean for that to be a landscape. <laughs> <laughs> Pun not intended, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> write that one down. Um, so what are you working on? Are you just continuing, like, and, and how is the the sort of environment as far as down there with, you know, pandemic life? I mean, are you edging towards any normalcy or are you still just working at home are you teaching over the over zoom yeah i'm i'm teaching virtually and i'm about to start uh teaching at a museum as well and uh working uh i'm working with a curator uh in the uk and she's wonderful and we have uh conversations all the time about my work and I have a, a couple of friends from that I met at the residency from South Africa and from Australia and just collaborating with them and, and discussing art. And so that's that's really wonderful. That's- I just did a conference, um, uh, uh, an artist talk at a conference here in the States. It was a virtual conference for uh, NSICA. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a, a speaker directly for Insica, but I was part of one of the discussions there. So I've been busy doing that. And um, I'm also, I'm working, I just started working uh, for a public art project in Fort Worth. And so far it's just been one meeting and just trying to to talk to the community and see what their feelings are like and what you know their history is. So that's where my research starts. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I guess I'm I'm really lucky that I have all these different things happening during the pandemic, and and I know a lot of people are struggling, and uh, so I'm just thankful uh, to have projects, you know, left and right right now. Yeah, it's really interesting too, thinking about those last two things that you mentioned. There's also a duality to both of those things, like imagining public art and environments like that too. Is that you're speaking to those two dynamics that you were talking about and navigating yeah. how work is seen in that realm with you know for those who have done public art it's a, a completely different audience and being you know it's one thing if people are coming into the gallery to experience the work it's another that when it's on the street and they can't avoid it so you get another kind of feedback from that yeah you know yeah. and then in Sika and thinking about ceramics too I would imagine I mean how do you do you you know, in the world of ceramics, there's the sort of maybe the hardliners who are like, you know, you know, that dynamic. Mm-hmm. And um, I would imagine you veer more towards the sort of, you know, I don't know how to explain it without irritating ceramicists, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like your work yeah. isn't like hyper, like conservative in the sense. Well, I don't know if that's the way. Traditional, yeah. I'm going to get screwed um, on this either way. <laughs> I love all ceramics. Let's put it that way. I love all ceramics But there is, too. in the ceramic ether, there's a, a split sometimes, or there's a dividing line between, you know, people will see a gallery show of a ceramicist who's showing contemporary work now and be like, oh, that's like, you know, what is this? You know? 
<laughs> so there's those who adhere more to a formal kind of way of making and value that maybe that's higher up than some other people who are just, you know, those um, ceramicists who do it on the fly or are not indebted in the procedure or the technique as much. Is that safe to... <laughs> I think so. I th- Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I mean, I think rock clay has its own voice yeah. and, and speaks differently than fired clay. That's true, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I talk about my work and I talk about, you know, I coil build, I pinch the sides of the sculptures, I, you know, I compress really well so they don't fall apart when I have to move them from place to place. Um, it is an ephemeral piece and that just comes along with the territory of working with rock clay. There are more artists that more and more are working with rock clay. Um, you know, Phoebe Cummings was a wonderful, amazing artist. Uh, this be- does these beautiful installations uh, with plant life, you know, with just rock clay. And uh, there's other artists. I can't I can think of their names right now. But, but yeah, I mean, it's just a different... A different voice and a different uh, understanding that you know it is not a fired ceramic piece, but it is ephemeral in nature. Yeah, and and that is just as valid. Well, in all honesty, it's all ephemeral, right? It's just a matter of like the longevity yeah. of the piece, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It all if, breaks if something, down. Yeah. <laughs> probably thank God because we don't want to just litter this place with stuff that's going to last for eternity. I mean, plastic. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's something beautiful about ephemeral. But do you? So when you're teaching, are you teaching ceramics or just art in general? Like, how, how, what's your sort of, you know, teaching menu? I I teach art appreciation, mm-hmm. um, and I also I'm a lab assistant for ceramics. Um, so at the at the lab, I'm you know, I fire work for students, but I'm also there as a resource. So whatever questions they may have, I'm there for them. And for art appreciation, I've been teaching that since I graduated uh, with my MFA. And I just, I love art appreciation. You know, it's, it's, you can really dive into everything, really. It's not an art history class, so I can, I I don't have to focus so much on that historical timeline. Like linear, it's less linear. You can jump around to ideas. yeah, exactly. I, I and that's that's sort of my teaching philosophy is like understanding the artwork and I do by you know, I do follow the, the the book that they have to read and but I also integrate some readings uh, about other artists that are not in the book and and just trying, you know, for them to think critically about the work and about their lives as well. And I think that part comes from my experience as a museum educator. Right. I I had a wonderful opportunity at the at a at one of the museums here in Dallas and, and just learning about that side really, you know, kind of added to my teaching style and, and just asking those uh, critical thinking questions um, that are not exactly, you know, directly from the book, but it's about them thinking about how does this relate to your own life, basically. Right. Yeah. Bringing it out of its own hermetic shell and applying yeah. it to greater sort of understanding of life right yeah and that way when they go out out in the world and and they're looking at artworks or they're contemplating taking art classes they can really think you know in broader terms and and really taking it in and and having the art speak to them which painfully recently means going out in the world means going on to google (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> One day. Well, some of some museums here are open now uh, with limited, yeah, limited uh, attendance, and you have to wear a mask. But they, yeah, people do have the opportunity here to visit in person. We're getting there, hopefully. Although it seems yeah. like Texas is trying to get there a little early. Faster, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, let's just, it is Texas. Let's just speed this up. <laughs> but then a lot of people are going there because they like that. You know, they want to, you know, let it fly, so to speak. I'm sure yeah, that's I mean, conditional on different areas and different places and all that stuff. In, in my opinion, as you know, if they have a mask, that's great. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the problem is when they're not wearing a mask. Yeah, I know. Um, so why don't you share with everyone listening, like, where they can find your work? I mean, your show is probably, they might not get to it. Of course, not many people are getting to a lot of shows outside of their home base, but um, people can find the show on the gallery website. So can you share all the information that you'd like to share with people to check out your work? Yeah, the show is up until April 3rd at 1226 Gallery. And it's open Tuesday through Friday by appointment and on Saturdays from 1 to 5, I believe. And uh, yeah, so there's just a week and a half, I think, um, for people to come check it out. And the works were documented and available uh, to see on, at the 1226 website. Um, and it's also, I've posted the images on my website, which is carlamichelgarcia.com. Um, or you can go to my Instagram, which is Carla Garcia Art, and you can find um, some other images on there that you can probably also find the process um, of making the work on there as well. It's great. Um, I wish I could see the show in person. Yeah, me too. Although I might. Maybe I can have another installation. If I get funding, I'll, I'll you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Second, <laughs> I'll go up there. I might ask the gallery too if I can like FaceTime in and check out the show. Before yeah, it's, that would uh, be great. Just, I mean, yeah. it's better than it's better than nothing, right? I mean, we're yeah. all kind of acclimating to a little bit of the zoomification of things. I guess it's it beats not seeing things at all, right? I think, yeah, and I, I mean, my work really does calls for uh, seeing it in person because you you have to like see the up close, you know, the texture of the clay, definitely, uh, the marks, uh, moving around it moving around them what that may feel like and also you know on the on the pictures on on up from the documentation they're sort of more from the sidelines so you don't really get to see the the tops of these which have openings and you can see in you got to get on the virtual reality augmented reality video walkthrough yeah. of the show bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, i'm i'm not sure how to do that but i i'll, I'll <laughs> I'll try to find out. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thanks so much. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was wonderful. Yeah, and maybe uh, at some point we can do a studio visit when life returns to some sort of... Oh, I, I, I would love that. Thank you so much. It's, it's an honor talking to you. Thanks so much. Sound and Vision is recorded, produced, and edited by myself, Brian Alfred, you can find out more about the podcast at the website sounddivisionpodcast.com or find images on Instagram at sounddivisionpodcast. You can follow my work at brianalfred.net and you can check out my work on Instagram at Alfred Studio. Many thanks to Carla for taking out the time to speak with me and 
thanks to the team at 1226 Gallery. Um, great people who facilitated the talk, and I highly recommend it if you are in Dallas to check out the gallery. Many thanks to Lullatone for the intro-outro music you're hearing now, and many thanks to Michael Lovett, as always, for his introduction. Check out him in Metronomy and Nazca Lines. Many thanks to you for listening. If you can, stop by iTunes, pay it a visit, and drop a review and a rating for the podcast, because that really helps get it on the radar of more people. Stay tuned. Lots of good episodes coming up. A lot of great artists lined up. Um, thank you so much.